All right, good morning once again, church family. Uh, if you would open your Bibles or type in uh, your device, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, uh, this morning we're going to be in verses 1 to 13. Uh, <clears throat> we've been going through the gospel of Mark for uh, a few months now, and we finished chapter 4 last week, and this morning we get to a new story. Um, and so we're going to be in verses 1 to 13, and we won't finish the story this morning. Uh, Lord willing, we'll finish it next week. Uh, the title of the sermon is, The One Who Frees Us From True Chains. So let's read the text, I'll open this in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. If you will, pray with me. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to see that there is one who has the power to free us from not just chains, but true chains. God, would you help us to see, give us eyes to see Jesus Christ. The one who, when he steps into our life, when he steps out of the boat and onto the shores of our life, he has the power to free us. That there is no chain that he cannot break. I pray, God, you would give us eyes to see him this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. We come to a new story this morning, and it's one that is uh, quite um, uh, captivating. Uh, there's really not a story like it in the Gospels. And so uh, this morning, we're going to start with an exposition of the text, trying to make sense of what's going on here. And then we will uh, get to application. We'll finish the story next week. So um, really kind of the, the, to me, the most miraculous part perhaps is uh, will be coming next week. But uh, we'll save that uh, for then. Uh, so let's look at the text. I'll go through it verse by verse. And then I'll give you application at the end of the exposition. Uh, let's start in verse 1 here where Mark writes, They came to the other side of the sea, 
to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, last week, uh, we saw that Jesus had said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side, the side of the Sea, the sea of Galilee. Previously, they were in Capernaum. That's Jesus' ministerial home is Capernaum. That's on the, uh, the northwest side of the sea. That's Jewish territory. And Jesus says that he wants to go to the east side of the sea. That's Gentile territory. And after being on the waters, they, were, they battle a violent storm. They make it to the other side of the sea. Now, Mark says that they landed in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, you probably have a footnote there that says uh, some manuscripts, Gergesenes, some Gadarenes. Uh, and really, however you resolve the spelling discrepancies there, it doesn't matter. One thing is sure. Jesus intentionally came to Gentile territory. He had an intention to go to Gentile territory. Now, I can only imagine that the disciples were wondering, what is so important, Jesus, that you had a sail through a hurricane to get to the other side? Like, what was so important that we need to get to this other side of the sea? And we're, gonna, we're about to see it in the story. Look at verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, if Jesus had crossed over the sea to get a respite from ministry, he will not find it here. Because as soon as he steps out of the boat, immediately he's met by a man. And not just any man. A man out of the tombs. A man with an unclean spirit. Mark tells us in verse 3 that this man lived among the tombs. Tombs in those days would have been cut out of the rock on the side of a hill, kind of like a miniature cave. And this is where this man makes his home. Now today, this would be like somebody living in a graveyard. He lives among the dead. And the man had an unclean spirit. Now we first encountered this phrase back in chapter 1, verse 23. And as I said there... We should not see a distinction between unclean spirits, demons, um, or um, evil spirits. They're all used interchangeably in the Gospels. They all are one and the same. Now, I want us to consider who this man is. He is most likely a Gentile. Jews consider Gentiles unclean. He lives among the dead. Contact with the dead rendered a person unclean in Jewish law. He has an unclean spirit, so unclean. And we're going to see in just a minute that he is surrounded by pig herders. Pigs are unclean animals to the Jews. So this is the least likely person that any Jew would ever want to come in contact with. He is unclean on every level, and yet Jesus just happens to dock his boat right where this man is. Look at verse 3 to 4. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. One commentator wrote this, the evil forces that torment the man among the tombs equal and parallel the violent tempest that beset the boat on the lake. 
In other words, the disciples went from a violent storm on the water to a violent man among the tombs. Mark writes that no one could bind him, not even with a chain. It appears that his, his local townspeople, they had, they had bound him. They had put shackles, uh, literally like fetters, They're like chains that go on the feet. They put these fetters on his feet. They put chains around his hand. And so here he is bound, hands and feet, but he wrenched the chains apart, literally tore them apart, Samson-like. He broke the shackles in pieces. The word there for uh, broke is shatter, smashed, crushed them into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. That word subdue there is literally tame. No one had the strength to tame him. And normally tame is used of an animal. I think Mark is suggesting that this man has the strength of a wild animal. and No one can tame him. Now one question I'm sure you have is this. Was this man just naturally strong? Or did the unclean spirit give him supernatural strength? Now the text does not say. But I do think it's a fair assumption to say that the unclean spirit gave him supernatural strength. I think that's a fair assumption. Look at verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, what kind of life did this man lead? Mark writes that night and day, while he's living among the tombs and among the mountains, he's always crying out. Now, what does that mean, crying out? Um, well, some, if you go out and you just stay in international district long enough, sometimes you'll hear people on the street just yelling. Sometimes even in the middle of a church service, you'll hear people yelling at the top of their voices, making inarticulate noises. I imagine it's something similar to that. And he was cutting himself with stones. It means to, to cut in a rough manner, to lacerate. So this man, he has a pretty miserable existence. He is driven from society. He is not in his right mind. He cries out night and day. And he's doing bodily harm to himself. That's a pretty miserable existence. Look at verse 6 to 8. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, I think it is interesting that Jesus did not approach this man. Rather, the man approached Jesus. He sees Jesus from afar. Perhaps he sees the boat coming. And as soon as it docks, he steps out of the boat. This man is running towards Jesus. And as he runs towards him, when he gets near him, he falls down before him. And as he falls down, he cries out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, I want to point out two things about what the demon says there. Number one, that first phrase, what have you to do with me? Literally, it is this, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? It's an idiom. It's a Greek idiom. The Net Bible gives a note that this idiom either implied defensive hostility, indifference, or disengagement. Like today, we would say, what business is, is, is this of yours? Right? I mean, mind your own business. I think that's kind of the idea. He's like, what do, what do you have to do with me? There's some hostility there. Number two, 
the demon knows who Jesus is. There's no question in his mind. He is the son of the most high God. He declares it out loud for all to hear. And then the demon makes an unexpected request of Jesus. He says, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Now, what does that mean? That phrase, I adjure you, it means to give a command to someone under oath. To adjure, to implore. Now, what does he adjure him by? He adjures him by God. That's interesting. On what basis does the, de does the demon invoke the name of God? It's kind of interesting to, to, to adjure God by God. Well, on what basis does he do this? Matthew 8.29 gives us a clue. In Matthew 8.29, here's how it reads. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Meaning, what, what, what time? the appointed time of judgment. So the demon is appealing to the father's will. In other words, it appears that the demons know in some measure that there is an appointed time for their judgment. They somehow know this. And so the demon makes his case. He's saying, it is not time to judge us. So I adjure you by God, do not torment me before the appointed time because that time is not yet. Now, why did the demon think that Jesus was there to judge them? Because Jesus had commanded the demon. He says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So the demon is afraid that Jesus is there to not only cast him out, but to cast him into hell and to judge him. Look at verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus does something quite unexpected. He asked the demon what his name is. Apparently demons have names. And the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now that's probably not his name. That's probably more of a title, my guess. The only other time this term Legion is used is when Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels, Matthew 26, 53. It's the only other time that term is used. Legion was a Roman military term. It consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. Now, I don't think that is to suggest that this man has 6,000 demons. I mean, it's possible. I don't think it is to suggest that he has 6,000 demons, but it is to suggest that he had many demons. Mary Magdalene, you remember her? Jesus had healed her of seven demons. He cast seven demons out of her. Look at verse 10 to 12. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. Now this man, speaking on behalf of the demons, begs Jesus earnestly not to send the legion of demons out of the country. Now we are not told why they don't want to leave this area, but it may be that they mistakenly think that because this is Gentile territory, they can have greater influence. They think that they rule and they reign this country and they don't want to leave it. Mark tells us that there was a great herd of pigs that are feeding there on the hillside. 
This also testifies this is Gentile territory. You would never have a great herd of pigs in Jewish territory. Pigs are considered unclean animals to the Jews. So the demons begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. Now I want you to notice that this legion of demons has to ask Jesus for permission. Twice, Mark writes, they begged Jesus and they request, let us, let us enter them. Meaning they can't even enter the pigs without Jesus's permission. So how was Jesus going to respond to their request? What is he going to say? Look at verse 13. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus gave them permission. Why? Why does Jesus grant their request? Three possible reasons. A, perhaps Jesus wanted to give indisputable evidence that he had cast out all these demons. In case this man would wonder, are they all gone? In case anybody of us today would wonder, perhaps Jesus wanted to give indisputable evidence, he cast them all out. B, perhaps Jesus is setting up the scene for what we will look at next week. Next week, we're going to see that this action of sending them into the pigs, it creates a problem. And perhaps Jesus is setting up the scene for that. We'll look at that next week. And see, these pigs may have fed the Roman army. That's probably a pretty good theory there. These pigs probably fed the Roman army and were used also probably for pagan sacrifices. The Romans did use pigs for pagan sacrifices. So perhaps Jesus is justly judging the Romans for this. Perhaps. Those are three possibilities. I don't know which of those it is. You can decide. Notice, though, the unclean spirits, plural, came out. Not just unclean spirit, not one of them, not half of them, not a third of them. All of them came out and they entered the pigs. Mark tells us there were about 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. I was trying to envision, like, what would 2,000 pigs even look like? I mean, that's huge. And once the demons enter them, the pigs rush down the steep slope into the Sea of Galilee and they drown. Which is interesting because I did not know this, but I, pigs can swim. But not demon-possessed pigs. Two questions I had are this. What happened to the demons when the pigs drowned? And number two, why did the demons drown the pigs? Or did the pigs drown the demons? One commentator said, the kamikaze demons fall victim to their own designs and tumble headlong into chaos. The joke is on them. I don't know if that's true. Perhaps the demons went to hell. You know, I, it is a theory Perhaps instead of the demons drowning the pigs, the pigs drowned the demons. And they said, let us go into the pigs, and the joke's on them. I don't know. 
perhaps they were confined to water. There is extra biblical writings that said demons would beg to not be confined to water. Um, we don't know. Some commentators, this is a very plausible theory. Some commentators also argue that the demons destroyed the pigs in a vengeful bid to turn the town against Jesus. If that is the case, they were successful, as we will see next week. We'll stop there with exposition. Application of the text. I have seven truths for us this morning. Seven truths. Number one, Jesus intentionally goes out of his way to seek out the least likely of candidates. Jesus intentionally goes out of his way to seek out the least likely of candidates. As I said last week, I think Jesus intentionally brings the disciples into the storm. He told them, let us go across to the other side. Now, at the time, we were all unaware of Jesus's motives. Perhaps he simply wanted to get away from the crowds. But this morning, we see that Jesus has something else, something more likely in mind when he said, let us go across to the other side. Jesus intentionally went out of his way to encounter this man. This is the heart of Jesus. Jesus said, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? Not only does Jesus intentionally go out of his way, but he does so to encounter the least likely of candidates. This man is a Gentile, unclean. He lived among the tombs, unclean. He is demon-possessed, unclean. He is surrounded by pig herders, unclean. He has no clothes, no home, no right mind. This is the most unlikely of candidates. And yet Jesus seeks him out. We see this pattern all throughout the Gospels. The Jews did not travel through Samaria. It is well documented that the Jews, Samaria, uh, if like here is Jewish territory, here's Samaria, and they wanted to get down here, they would go around it. They would go out of their way to not walk through Samaria. They did not believe that the dust of Samaria was worthy to cling to their sandals. But what did Jesus do? He intentionally walked right into Samaria to encounter a Samaritan woman at the well. Even she is surprised that he's talking to her. Jesus withdrew to Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory. And he comes across a Gentile woman, an unclean. The Jews believed that Gentile women were perpetually unclean. And she approaches him. Her daughter is demon-possessed. Jesus even tells her, you are an unlikely candidate. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. I was not sent to you dogs. And yet Jesus still encounters her and heals her daughter. This is what Jesus does. Now how many of us did Jesus intentionally go out of his way to find us? And to set us free. You see, there's no scenario in life. There is zero scenario in life 
where, let's say if I was supposed to be at my job, but I'm off just traveling the world. I'm enjoying my life, living it up, neglecting my job. I'm not doing remote work. Like, I'm not doing no work. I'm just enjoying my life, doing what I want. There's no scenario where my boss would come find me and tell me, Matt, come home. I'm giving you a promotion. Jesus intentionally goes out of his way to find the least likely of candidates. This is what he does. Number two, true chains are always internal, not external. True chains are always internal, not external. It appears this man was a danger to himself and to society. So the people of the town had chained him up. They put chains on his hands. They put shackles on his feet. They did this many times. For he was often bound by the townspeople. And yet every time, what did he do? He tore the chains apart. He shattered the shackles in pieces every time. Now, as this man breaks his chains and shatters his shackles, society could look at him and say, he is free. Look at him. He is free. Society is trying to chain him up, but he is free. Society cannot chain him up. He is a free man. But we all look at this man and none of us say he is free. Why? Because true chains are always internal, not external. You see, we live in a society today that is constantly trying to break free of chains. The world says that the man, the establishment, authority, culture, has created all these chains. Heterosexuality is a chain. And you need to come out from, un from those chains. Gender is a chain. You don't have to submit to this binary chain. Your childhood is a chain. And you can rise above those chains. Marriage is a chain. Why would you chain yourself down? Children are chains. Become a dink. Double income, no kids. Sacrificial love is a chain. Love yourself. Church and religion are chains. They were set up to control you. Then you guys know that's what I was doing to you right now? Truth itself is a chain. Create your own truth. Now, with, with everybody breaking free of their chains, wouldn't we expect to see enormous freedom in our society? People right and left are breaking free of all these chains, and yet we don't see that. We see people every day walking around in bondage. Why? 
Because true chains are always internal, not external. You see, this man's greatest problem is not the iron chains around his hands and his feet. This man's true chain are the spiritual chains that surround his heart and his soul. True chains are always internal, not external. Three, we walk among the walking dead. We walk among the walking dead. This man lived among the tombs. He was walking among the dead. Why? Because he himself is dead. There's a TV show called The Walking Dead. I've never seen it. I've never seen a single episode. I have no idea what it's about, except I think it's about zombies. I was thinking about this man and how he has a lot in common with a zombie. He is walking, but he is dead. Growing up, I loved Halloween. I loved it. It was one of my favorite times of the year. My brother and I would dress up, take a pillowcase. That's what that was, that was our, our, my mom wouldn't get us those, uh, those nice McDonald's bu buckets. I always wanted one of those buckets from McDonald's and my mom wouldn't get me one and so we used a pillowcase. I love you, mom. Um, <laughs> we'd go around our neighborhood asking for candy. I quickly became a candy addict. Still am to this day. <laughs> After I became a Christian and I matured in the faith, I have become increasingly discouraged at the joy surrounding Halloween. There's a celebration of horror and murder and death and darkness and witchcraft and sorcery and evil spirits and hell. And when I read this story, I want nothing to do with those things. You see, demons are not something to be celebrated or used for decorations. Death is not something to be celebrated or used for decorations. There is a very real darkness out there. And it is no celebratory occasion. We walk among the walking dead. The places at your workplace, at your schools, in your communities, we walk among the walking dead. Four. Demon-possessed people give us a picture of how God sees perfectly normal but rebellious sinners. Demon-possessed people give us a picture of how God sees perfectly normal but rebellious sinners. As I was reading this story, I was trying to picture what would it be like to see this man in real life? What would it be like? Luke tells us that he had no clothes on. He has no home. He's crying out night and day, and he is cutting himself with stones. And I was trying to imagine, like, what would it be like to see this man in real life? And then I realized, I, I, I see that almost every week of my life. I see people outside our church. They have no home. 
Some of them are yelling at the top of their voices. Some of them have no clothes on. I've seen people walk down the street completely naked, men and women. Some of them are cut up all over their body. Now listen, I am very well aware that the majority of this is drug-related. Some of them even look dead. On more than one occasion over the past 12 years, more, especially in the past five, I've had to wake someone up on the street legitimately not knowing if they were alive or dead. Those who are addicted to fentanyl, they enter a zombie-like state. They're, they're standing, but they're like almost suspended in air. And as I was reading this story, I realized that this picture, like the picture that I see out there, that you see out there, or the picture that we see here, I realized that this picture is a picture of how God sees perfectly normal people, normal people, but rebellious sinners. You see, this man says things that causes him to say, this man uh, says things he doesn't mean, things he doesn't understand. Sin causes us to say things that we don't mean and we don't understand. This man has no clothes on. Sin covers us with tattered, filthy rags. This man is hurting himself. Sin causes us to hurt ourselves. This man is isolated. Sin causes us to hide ourselves and isolate ourselves. You see, demon-possessed people or even drug-addicted people, they are given to us as a picture of this is how God sees perfectly normal people but who are rebellious sinners. It's a vivid reminder of this is what I look like when I rebel against God. Five, physical and verbal worship of God is not salvation. Physical and verbal worship of God is not salvation. The demons physically and verbally worship Jesus. Physically, what does the man do when he sees Jesus? He ran. He ran and fell down before him. He does not walk to Jesus. He runs to Jesus. He does not stand in Jesus' presence. He falls down before Jesus. We saw the same thing in Mark 3.11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, <clears throat> they fell down before him. Verbally. This is now the third time that the demons declare who Jesus is. The first was Mark 1.24. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. The second was Mark 3, 9. You are the Son of God. And the third is Mark 5, 7. You are Jesus, Son of the Most High God. You see, they physically worship Jesus. They verbally worship Jesus. And they will not be saved. I think we can all agree that going to church is not salvation. I think any of us here who are in Christ, I think we all would agree. Maybe even if you're not in Christ, we all would agree that going to church is not salvation. But can we also agree that going to church and even physically worshiping 
and even verbally worshiping is not salvation either. We can pray. We can sing praises. We can take sermon notes. We can have our theology down pat and not be saved. Six. Satan and his demons can't even enter a pig without Jesus' permission. Satan and his demons can't even enter a pig without Jesus' permission. A few weeks ago in Sunday school, we were studying 1 Thessalonians, uh, where Paul writes, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. In that context, Paul wants to go visit the Thessalonians, but he can't because Satan has hindered him. For, and, and for whatever reason, God has, has let that happen. And we were talking about the idea in Sunday school that Satan is powerful. His demons are powerful. I mean, we, we see right here that the, these demons, this legion of demons gives this man the power to break his chains and his shackles. You see, all throughout the Bible, we witness the havoc and destruction that Satan and his demons are given and do to God's people. Satan destroys Job's life and his family. Satan incites David to take a census, killing 70,000 people. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about Satan is stealing away the word that is sown in people's hearts. Satan had bound a woman for 18 years in the Gospels. Satan entered Judas, causing him to betray Christ and eventually committing suicide. Satan filled Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, leading to his death and to his wife's death. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's messenger is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Satan is described as having schemes and designs. Satan is described as a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. And Satan, in Revelation, throws Christians into prison to test them. And yet, despite all of this, despite all this havoc, all this destruction, I don't want us to miss the phrase, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. What does that mean? It means Satan and his demons can't even enter a pig without Jesus' permission. The storm cannot touch us. Satan cannot touch us without God say so. Number seven. We may have strength to break external chains, but there is only one who can free us from our internal chains. We may have strength to break our external chains, but there is only one who can free us from our internal chains. One of the most tragic statements that I hear from people when they deconstruct from the faith or when they walk away from the faith or when they start to believe a form of Christianity that is not biblically faithful is this. I feel so free. 
feel free. You see, something in their life made them feel like they were chained. And now they feel like they've broken free. Demons gave this man the strength to break his external chains. And he could argue, I am free. He can go around boasting to the world, I am free. No one can chain me up. Look at what society tries to do, and yet I break free every time. I feel so free. But where is this man to get the strength to break free from the chains and the shackles that the demons have on him? You see, the way that Satan works is he gives us power. Satan will give us power. He will give us power to break free of external chains, real or perceived. He will. You have things in your life that you're chained with, you want strength to break free of that, Satan will be happy to give it to you. But in doing so, what does he do? He sinks his own chains on us. He sinks his own chains on us. And the problem with his chains, they are strong. The strong man has put on the shackles and we need one who is stronger than the strong man to set us free. There is only one. There is only one who can free us from our internal chains. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, if you want to be free in your life, if you feel chained by society, you feel chained by the way you were raised, you feel chained by your parents, you feel chained by your marriage, you feel chained by your kids, you feel chained by uh, your sexual orientation, if you feel chained by anything in your life, you need to break free of the internal chains, not the external ones. And there's only one who can free you from these. You can find strength to break free of external chains. You can. But there is only one who can free you from your true chains. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.